So if you were to smell a smell that would be both like homey and arousing, would it be cookies? Would it be cotton candy? What would the smell be? Hmm. That's a good question. It would be, you know, I mean, apple pie. Maybe banana nut bread. Ooh, good answer. I had a neighbor growing up. uh, We lived out in the country, and they were our next-door neighbors. And she was elderly, um, almost like a grandparent. And she would make uh, banana bread and cherry Kool-Aid for me pretty often. Mm. Uh, If it was my house, it'd probably be like jambalaya. My dad made jambalaya a lot, and I can think of like yummy. That's a very... I don't go to a food smell right away. I'm thinking of something both floral and musky. Floral and musky. Yeah. My dad chewed... uh, uh, skull long cut wintergreen. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Oh, that's a great that. smell. Yeah. Ah, yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, look, maybe it is just stale beer and stale cigarettes. Maybe that is the smell. It, 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 yeah. I, I mean, I don't know. I mean, there are like uh, sort of nostalgic components to that kind of stuff, but I don't know if it's got the same erotic component. Sure. And what, but that, the, the the nostalgia seems to be a component of Michael's pheromone or whatever. At right. least for Andy McDowell. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, we got the scene in the bar where they're all smelling something different. Caramels right? and cotton candies and. Uh, it is funny. I, uh, I told you guys this off air, but it'll make for good radio, so I'll bring it up again. Uh, I'm not trying to say Blank Check stole this from us, uh, but uh, after we stopped doing it, when they started uh, doing because uh, they were still talking about Star Wars in like 2015, uh, but their their new convention or current and have been doing it for a while uh, is they open the show with a quote from the movie and they swap podcasting in, uh, you know, that thing that we yeah. used to do once upon a time. Um, and... Uh, Griffin Newman wisely picked uh, podcasts. He smells like podcasts, and it's uh, worse when he's in heat. Yeah, it's yeah, very funny. Sure. Uh, it's the best it's line to, to use yeah. that. Yeah, it's exactly. It's a great joke, both in the movie and also to use if, if that's your opener. That's so I funny. like this movie a lot. What, what, what's Heath Huffman's joke? A group of white guys is a podcast yeah, yeah, of yeah. white men. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. Uh, I heard a good joke the other day. You know what a group of Karens is? What's that? A homeowners association. That's funny. That's <laughs> accurate. I'm just laughing now. All right. Uh, hey, stuff. hello, Hi. everybody. Welcome to the Good Trash Honorcast, where uh, we make fun of memes and sometimes talk about movies. and uh, Or maybe it's the other way around. But I think it's the other way around, but in either case, we're doing both today. And we are here to discuss the films you'll never discuss in the Films Days course. This week's film is no exception. It is uh, Nora Ephron's 1996 yes. film, Michael, uh, starring John Travolta. One of, if not her highest grossing uh, film. It's it's a high high ninety million dollar yeah, film north of ninety I think is what it I did. think it was like a hundred hundred twenty oh did you do a full hundo wow and Good so Lord. Uh, which hurt is it it's John Hurt William William see I, I do was, it all uh, the time the younger Hurt yeah William Hurt no relation as far as I know um and uh, Andy McDowell uh, Bob Hoskins uh at great times um yeah. somebody else Richard Schiff. Richard for Schiff a second is in the Italian restaurant. <laughs> He's so funny. Joey Lawrence Adams for a minute. Yeah. Carla Gugino yeah. for a minute. Oh, I love a Carla cameo. You know it. A guy that kind of looks like uh, Oliver no, Platt. No, it was, uh, no, it wasn't Carla. It's not Oliver Platt, but yeah. Uh, yeah, not Oliver Platt. Really should have been Oliver Platt. Uh, it's not Carla. It's, um, um, oh, God, from Bound. Um, Gina Gershon. Right? Oh, yeah. I think it's Carly Gugino. She's Maybe. credited. Oh, I'm, you're right. I'm the stooge. Don't listen to me. But anyway, um, we're like here to talk about stooge. that movie. I am still Dustin. I'm still Arthur. I am still Dalton. And my middle name is Michael, and I smell like nothing um, at all. Well. Yeah, well, oh, well. Uh, opinions we, vary. Oh, <laughs> sadness. But anyway, um, we're here to discuss the film, Michael. In case you're tuning into the Good Trash Genrecast for the very first time, we want to warn you, dear listener, this is an analysis show, not a review show, and that means there will be spoilers. The spoilers will be held off, though, for the first part of the show. We'll have synopsis and a quick set of thumbs-up, thumbs-down reviews. Then we'll move into a little mental exercise called Expand the Syllabus, which will have a little bit of spoilers, and then we'll get down to business, and that business will be analysis. There you go. I'm done. I don't want to... Wow, that was quick. I Yeah, it's a thing we do. And Lightning we speed. Do it all the time. Hey, Arthur. Hey, Dustin. Do you like Michael? 
I, do you want a synopsis first? Oh, I, yeah. He, he was, was moving so fast. Yeah, so fast. I He's ready to go home. I'm, no, I'm, no, I'm just, I'm just, I'm just, you know, I'm doing the thing. Well, look, he is salaried, not hourly. Can't blame him. It's true facts. So, hey, um, let's go ahead and start with that synopsis then. When three tabloid journalists get a report of an angel living in Iowa, they think it could be their next big hoax-turned-scoop. But when they arrive, they discover a living, breathing angel, one who drinks, smokes, and swears. He's Michael, the archangel. Michael agrees to go back to Chicago with the group, but they'll have a price to pay for their story when their time comes. Dun, dun, dun. Thank you very much. I'm just going to, every time we have a Make synopsis, it really dramatic. Yeah, every time. Um, that sort of film noir. Yeah, you know, brass coming in. So thank you very much for that, Arthur. Hey, do you like it? I do surprise, surprise myself. Had you seen it before? I had not. Okay. Uh, I, I mentioned last week on our uh, Splice episode that I remember seeing the commercials and trailers and posters all the time, uh, but never never caught this one. Um, I, I do enjoy it. Act one is a really strong setup. There's a great introduction to the character. He uh, smites a bank. Lines. Yeah, it's a great moment. Uh, we get some interesting dynamics with uh, meeting the tabloid journalists when they're on a shoot in a weird cultural situation that's odd. Get, yeah, I get some Bob Hoskins racism going. Yeah, uh, we get... Uh, British Bob Hoskins, which is a blast, um, doing doing that whole bit. Um, and then Act 2 is like a road movie uh, where they just meander across country going to bars and dancing with uh, women who are highly attracted to Michael. Uh, that's all fun. Uh, I think, uh, for the most part, I, I do enjoy it. I think William Hurt and, and feels very miscast here. He is born to play a professional antagonistic type mm-hmm. and having him uh, slated in as the suave, uh, handsome, uh, rich man who's a bit, or uh, leading man who's a bit jaded, but ultimately has a heart of gold is is a weird turn uh, for him. I don't think that works. Yeah, weird spot in his career, too, I think. I think we, yeah. nobody knew what to do with him in the 90s. Yeah, put him in a villain role. That, that's all you need to do with the guy. Uh, very much like an Ed Harris type and just doesn't. Yeah, he, he just aged out of being a, a sex symbol. Yeah. Uh, not necessarily even aged out because he looks great. He just... Oh, he it yeah. just changed his energy. Yeah, it just doesn't work for what they're going for here. Um, uh, I, you know, this feels very much like a uh, early uh, Robert. Uh, oh my God, Iron Man, Robert Downey oh. Jr. Yeah, Robert Downey. Yeah, very RDJ much... would have been great yeah. in this. Anyway, uh, oh my God, yeah. I think Annie McDowell's fine. Uh, she's cute, but her her character's all over the place, and they don't go anywhere with that. Uh, I wish Michael had more to do. Uh, we're sold that he's this kind of honorary smoke and drinking angel and don't get some of that he he does a dance number which is wild but i could have used more weird michael um mm-hmm. now third act is a mess I, I i'm really frustrated with third act because it feels like they force so many of those rom-com tropes into that third act because they have to and, mm. and i think that really undercuts everything else that happens in this movie uh there's a great sweetness uh and and weirdness to this film that really does work i think and that's what makes that second act so enjoyable and and endearing if it's you know it's not necessarily entertaining because those kind of get boring as they just meander uh through the second act of this film uh but there's a sweetness to the dynamic of this group um and so that's you know enjoyable uh i don't think anybody on the set knew anything about country music for some (laughs) reason which really underserves annie mcdowell's character even further um who's Hobby is writing country music songs, which he left me in my Camaro doesn't sound like a country lyric, which felt like just a weird cover for what she was actually really there for. But turns out she does write country music. Uh, So that's an odd thing. I think this movie's a mess. I think this movie feels like three movies in one. There are four credited uh, screenwriters, story writers, and it feels like that. It feels like 
there were three different ideas that they just meshed together. I think two of those ideas work really well. I think the third, uh, that is a rom-com, does not work at all because of the way it plays. And, and there's no, yeah, there's no information online about the what the original looked like. You know, we we, uh, we get the story credit from the two original screenwriters and then Nora Ephron and her sister, uh, you know, have first billing on the screenplay itself. And then the original writers, you know, are, are co-credit with the, the and instead of an ampersand. So, yeah, we know that Nora Ephron and her sister, her frequent uh, screenwriting collaborator, definitely retooled this. And it's very obvious that it wasn't a Nora Ephron movie and was turned into one. But yeah. you're absolutely right. It is kind of hard to suss out exactly, like, what's her and what's, you know, from the original version. It feels like, uh, yeah, it feels like they had a great concept. And I think they do have a great concept. Absolutely. And yeah. it feels like at some point somebody was like, hey, we need to make this a rom-com stat. Uh, to make it a family Christmas movie, um, and I don't think that works at all. I wonder if it was maybe more rom-com originally, and they pared that aspect of it I down. So. I mean, those elements are there, I think. Obviously, yeah. that, that connection between McDowell and Hurt's character uh, very much feels like a rom-com, because they'd have that kind of mute-cute at the office, and, and then it kind of disappears, and I, then it kind of is threaded back in, but it never really yeah. works in that. There's way. aspects of it that do work, and maybe yeah. we'll get into that in analysis. So, uh, yeah. But for me, I, I, I did enjoy it ultimately. Overall, I thought it was fun. I thought it was endearing. It was sweet. I would enjoy watching it again because there's a lot to like, I think, there. But I do think it's a mess of a film. Uh, so that's where I stand. Very good, very good. Thank you, Mr. Arthur Gordon. Hey, Dalton, what do you think of Michael? Well, I'm just going to mostly echo Arthur's sentiments, which is why I, I jumped in with him so much. Is just because, yeah, I mean, he's, he's right on the money. This movie's weird. And a great time. Uh, there's not a whole lot like it. Uh, it's so different from, uh, again, I haven't seen all of Nora Ephron's work, but, um, you know, probably a third of her filmography I've seen. And, and it, you can definitely feel her, you know, kind of sensibilities on this film for sure, but it, it feels off the beaten path of what I know. Uh, but I, I really dig it uh, in all of its weirdness and nonsense and very a mid-90s movie, if ever there were one. Um, and I, I kind of do, as Arthur uh, said, I also uh, appreciate the kind of ambling, uh, just, Nate, I was going to say vignette, but that's not even the, quite the right way to phrase it, but uh, just kind of the ambling structure of this film. And I know a couple of weeks ago I took uh, swim, fam to ta swim Fan to task for its, you know, uh, inability to string scenes together in terms of cause and consequence. Um, and, I you know, I'm only bringing that up to say... Uh, when I pat a back uh, a film on the back for being kind of weird and ambling and ha or having a vignette structure as I often do because I like movies like that, I, I I think that's when you can get away with your scenes not necessarily always connecting together when you have already established that it's not really a plot movie. You can get away with those things I if plot is only secondary. But even in this film where plot is secondary, I would say the emotion of scenes do inform the preceding or the uh, the next scene, the following scenes. Uh, there is always a development of character and, and emotion that, that goes throughout. I think that's how you make an ambling kind of uh, structuralist, pointless film work is, is to uh, build things on character and emotion instead. Uh, and, and as Arthur has said, that's, that's where this film is strongest is in those first two thirds, where it is more focused on that than getting somewhere. And uh, yeah, I'm right there with you. I could have watched a lot more of this. Um, so I'm not going to belabor the point too much. Again, I'm pretty much right in, in step with Arthur on this. I, I will go ahead and just say uh, it was fun to see uh, Randy Newman credited on the theme song on this. A little unintentional That's uh, fun, yeah. a Wheel of Randy crossover episode for you here. That's the Wheel of Randy hosted by Dan Wade, a new show here on the Good Trash Media Network. Uh, I actually asked Dan 
I was like, oh, hey, uh, <laughs> so we're watching Michael, and uh, he, he uh, Randy did the uh, theme song for this. Uh, just wanted to, it made me laugh real good. Uh, Arthur, you mentioned off air that uh, it's unfortunate we did not know about this uh, earlier and couldn't have scheduled a, an episode to have Dan on as a guest. That would have been a lot of fun. But I did ask Dan, uh, and he's seen it. He saw the film in theaters, and he remembers nothing about it. All he remembers is uh, the scene where Michael stumbles downstairs for the first time in his boxers. Uh, a little girl in his theater shouted, That looks like Daddy! <laughs> perfect. Perfect. Perfect movie theater story. Yeah, I love that stuff. So, uh, Thank you, Dan Wade, for that that beautiful anecdote. And I'd say that about sums up Michael as a film. It is uh, very much speaking to a a, a schlubby '90s masculinity uh, that I am uh, very endeared by. Uh, I like this movie; it's goofy as hell. Um, but yeah, I don't know. It ticks a lot of boxes. There's there's so much wrong with it, and yet it it kind of coalesces into something more interesting than the sum of its parts for me, despite uh, all all of its. Uh, peculiarities. Uh, I mean, again, he 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 is established by you know blowing up a bank in the first act. That's fun stuff. I uh, I love uh, John Travolta in this a, a great deal. And I think Arthur's right about miscasting. Uh, I think that we can probably talk about that more when we get to analysis because I think it'll be fun to talk about formally speaking. Uh, but I think the one person who's kind of right on the money with their performance is John Travolta. Weirdly, I think he's he's doing a great great work here. Uh, it, it's weird that. Um, this comes after Pulp Fiction and this kind of his his renaissance, his resurgence in the 90s. Uh, it's it's a weird one in his career arc. But, uh, yeah, I, I think he is dialed in really, really well for this. For whatever reason, it works for me. All right. Thank you very much for that, Mr. Dalton Stewart. So remind me, Arthur, um, I selected this film. And uh, because we were uh, looking at a, a slate of movies to be watching over the month of August, and we had a couple other selections. So initially we were going to watch Can't Hardly Wait at right. this point, but it went off of streaming. And so I, and I was trying to find something with a female director, something a little different. Uh, and so I proposed either this or The Bling Ring, uh, Sofia Coppola's. Was it just the two? Yeah. And, okay. And I, I gave you that choice. To just, And I kind of knew what you might... Pick. I picked it because I thought I'm going to pick something bad. I want to pick something to make my co-hosts suffer. Yeah. Because I had seen this movie and I had not seen it since theaters. Um, I did see it 15 years old in 1996. I think I, I might have seen it on on VHS uh, shortly after its release. Uh, but yeah, I, I definitely hadn't seen it as an adult. And right. I'm, I'm glad you selected it. Uh, well, my memory was it's going to be bad and it'll be so much fun. How did you feel rewatching? And it then I watched it. Went this movie's so much fun. I mean, I'm having a good time. First time since you saw it in 1996. Right. Or and it's like, oh yeah, I liked it again a lot in '96, but I just assumed that I liked it and. That doesn't mean anything. I assume that I was an idiot, and I yeah. well, you're 15. That's an accurate assumption, probably. Yeah, yeah, and I, you know, still am an idiot. But that being said, uh, the movie holds up in ways that I'm surprised at, and I really do enjoy it. I, I like Andy McDowell. I like William Hurt. Um, I, I do have a little trouble believing him as the romantic lead, but as far as what he's doing with this particular character, this particular sure. arc, I get it works. I mean, it makes sense, and uh, seems to be doing it just fine. Uh, John Travolta is lights out. As Michael, I really just love it, and I love the idea of this like, legendary thick king, John Travolta. You know, this really schlubby. It looks, you know, John Travolta. If he is the angel Michael, um, he is the angel Michael. You know, the Van Halen cover with the angel with the pack of cigarettes, the little baby angel, and the little uh, like it's it's almost like a, a a duck's tail haircut, but it's got almost horns. It's a little blonde hair. Love that. Uh, it's, it's anyway, it's a Van Halen cover. Um. It's like that baby grew up into John Travolta, and I—that's my new headcanon. So that was what Luke Who's Talking is about. <laughs> yes, 
Um, but yeah, it's it, it's really a lot of fun. I really do enjoy it a lot. Um, I I am also sort of frustrated. I don't care after they finally get to Chicago. Um, once that all happens, it's like okay, this movie's over for me. Um, yeah, there's like twenty minutes left when it gets to that point. Very surprising. But the road movie that is the movie totally works for me and uh, is a lot of fun. Ed or uh, Becca said we should. Uh, turn this episode into a commercial for the uh, the Patreon because uh, Mike will share so many similarities with the character of Ed uh, including uh, sabotaging vehicles when he doesn't get his way. <laughs> As a chaos demon. Yeah. 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 So uh, hey, uh, now's a good time. Uh, listener, uh, if you want to listen to me play a very Michael-esque character, if you're hearing us describe this movie where you've seen it, you want to hear me play somebody like that, you go to patreon.com forward slash GTM and throw us some, some money in the bucket. And uh, you can listen to Dustin and I play Monster of the Week, uh, a tabletop, uh, while Arthur uh, DMs us through uh, through our journeys. And while we're at it, we're also on Twitter, aren't we, Dalton? Oh, yeah. Let's get this out of the way now while we're here. We're at good underscore trash. Uh, it's where you can find links to new episodes of this show, uh, new episodes of Praise Down, The Wheel of Randy, other shows on the network. Uh, you can also just go to goodtrashmedia.com. I don't think we have uh, Dan Wade set up over there yet, uh, so I don't think Wheel of Randy's posting on the website yet. Uh, but you can just find uh, Wheel of Randy in your podcatchers. Um, check it out. I, I think you'll you'll be uh, very delighted. Um, what else is there to plug? Uh, we've got the Patreon. We've got the Twitter. Oh, if you have long-form feedback for us, if you listen to last week's episode of Splice and you got way too horny and want to work through that, uh, or if you uh, find Michael Blasphemous, you can email us, goodtrashgenrecast at gmail.com, and Dustin will, uh, I don't know, tell you to say 10 Hail Marys and wipe your ass or something. Uh- and if you liked what we had to say about Michael, next week we're going to be talking. Oh, sorry. Oh no, no, no. Yeah. we were on a roll. I was. Yeah, you, you're ready to bring it on no, home no. into the station. Well, those are our initial thoughts on Michael. Let's move on to our little thought exercise, which is expanding the syllabus, in which we are pretending that we are using Michael as part of a class, film studies or otherwise. We want to know what class it is. We want to know sort of what kind of stuff we're doing, and with what would you augment Michael? What additional readings and/or viewings would you add? So I go to you first, Dalton. What class are you teaching, and how are you using? Michael. Well, to that joke about blasphemy, I think we'll do a class called The Social Theology of Secular Christianity, uh, where we are going to kind of examine uh, American, uh, uh, let's just go ahead and say Western, but more American-centric depictions of uh, Christianity within popular culture, uh, both uh, as it functions in the world and as a, a mythological uh, framework to draft your story onto. Uh, I, I am f- always fascinated, especially as somebody that uh, grew up in the evangelical church. Uh, I, I am always fascinated by the way that pop culture engages uh, with Christianity, because as as a child I was confused by it, and as an adult I deeply understand it. I think uh, uh, just the uh, the desire to go ahead and f- keep what rules work for your story, throw out what doesn't, uh, and still try to say something about the function of. Uh, a, a heavily corporatized religion within your society, uh, which is unfortunate that that happened uh, to such a, uh, you know, otherwise interesting uh, ethical theological framework. Uh, but I think the first thing to that point to kind of keep things on the up and up, I think maybe we will look at the uh, the screw tape letters, which is not something I have personally read, uh, but uh, it gets referenced in culture a ton uh, because of its kind of general crossover appeal uh, in both the uh, the secular and religious worlds. Uh, for those not in the know, this is obviously a, a C.S. Lewis work uh, outside of his Narnia stuff, uh, which is, you know, it's a epistolary novel uh, about a demon. Uh, more use of that fun word from last uh, week where I talked about Frankenstein when we were discussing Splice. Uh, but again, this is, a, you know, just a book about uh, human behavior and temptation and, you know, things of that nature. Again, I've skimmed this book as a child. I've never actually read it. But I think it'll be useful to have somebody who is 
uh, deep, very deeply interested in theology, was a religious person himself, and also had a big pop cultural output in the 20th century. Uh, I, I think it'll be interesting as a framework. I think then we're going to do a hard left turn and do uh, look at Preacher, both the comic book and the television series, uh, and look at um, a cultural depiction of uh, Christian mythology in, in which God is an asshole, uh, which I think if you are concerned with the problem of evil in the world when you're thinking about the paradox of a, of a God entity, I think Preacher is really useful for engaging with that idea. Um, uh I ref with Dustin and Arthur and I. I told them this uh, off air last week, but I'm going to go ahead and re-reference it. Somebody uh, who's a handle I unfortunately can't remember right now uh, tweeted. Uh, I saw this week. Uh, uh, what the fuck, God is a perfectly acceptable prayer, and, and I think preacher kind of fits that that mold uh, very well. It, it is that sentiment stretched out into a, a long arching uh, serialized narrative. Uh, so again, I think it'll be really useful to to engage with that, especially kind of. Uh, Garth Enos's um, distaste and fascination with American culture, uh, and then also looking at uh, the TV show and Seth Rogen and Evan Goldberg, uh, looking at uh, the, these two guys' exploration of Christianity coming from kind of a, a you know a secular Canadian Jewish background. Uh, again, I just think really fascinating. Lots of different, lots of different stuff. In, in the stew with that one. So I think it'll be really useful for this class. Uh, obviously, we're going to be looking at Michael. And kind of this kind of wishy-washy, uh, wooey, uh, magic is real uh, kind of conception of, of Christianity that, that exists in this film. Um, you know, kind of the, this depiction, the, the only insight that uh, the, these um, big city types have of Christianity is the wish granter Jesus, you know, Will Hurt and his assistant. Who, what's that actor's name? Anybody have that off the dome? Nope. I don't know him from anything else. He looks so familiar. I've Again, seen him in a lot of stuff. Not Oliver Platt, but yeah, I can't. Anyway, the, the you know, they, they uh, are very thankful to Jesus when their, their road trip to go find Michael uh, pays off. So again, I, I find Michael interesting in that regard, the way it, it very loosely engages uh, with uh, religious uh, magics and such. Uh, I think we'll also be looking at It's a Wonderful Life, and it's kind of its magical realism and it, it's it's secular humanism uh, in a very 50s Hollywood way. Uh, but again, kind of looking at the politics of that film, uh, the theology of that film. Um, I don't know. I Again, a, a movie that has become a bit trite and cliche um, after being a bomb at the box office when it first came out, I think only gets more fascinating the more it becomes a cultural staple and the more we pick it apart. I think it, there really is a lot to be gleaned there. Uh, and then I think we will close with uh, maybe a couple episodes of the HBO series starring Danny McBride, John Goodman, and I'm sure he hates being called this, but I can't think of his name. That one guy from Workaholics. Uh, it's Righteous Gemstones. Oh, Adam Levine? Adam Levine. Thank you, Arthur. Uh, is it Levine or Levine? Who's sure? Uh, but anyway, I, I've only seen a couple episodes of the show, but I think it's really good. Uh, a takedown uh, of modern televangelism, um, which fits well with the uh, Kim Kim Copeland meme that Arthur sent us earlier this week, uh, which made me was one of the things that made me think of Righteous Gemstones. Actually, was looking COVID nineteen. <laughs> but again, I think that is such a fascinating, and again, the uh, maybe the most American interpretation of Christianity since Mormonism is the the televan modern televangelist uh, take on it, which is uh, bad. And uh, I don't pastor a church, so I can say things like, those people can go fuck themselves. Um, and, uh, you know, Dustin just gets to look at me and make faces and doesn't have to say anything. And I'm sure he appreciates that uh, I say mean things like that. But uh, I think these people are bad and poisonous, and I don't want to necessarily dunk on them too much. Like, I'm, I don't, I'm not taking them apart as human beings, but I am fascinated in the psychology 
Right. I am fascinated in the, the grifter. It's pathology. You know, the grifter pathology. You're absolutely right. Um, you know, uh, we, this is obviously hot. Uh, this is a couple of weeks late now, but, you know, what's his doodle? Um, oh, God. Billy Graham's son. Franklin. Yeah, uh, who just uh, got in trouble for uh, his uh, Trailer Boys party on the yacht. You guys know what I'm talking about? You know about this? Might not be Billy. No, it's not Billy Graham. No. It's the other uh, one. Jerry Falwell's yeah. kid. Falwell's kid. Yeah, like, I wouldn't know what you're talking about. Yeah, Jerry yeah, Falwell's Jr. kid. Oh, God. What a fun time. Did you guys see he got kicked, kicked out? Yep. Yeah. <laughs> but again, these guys are uh, psychos. Uh, they're, dr- they're drug-addled uh, hedonists. Uh, just like the rest of us, and uh, yet they are doing something very different, and I, I am fascinated by it. I think Righteous Gemstones, uh, I, I don't think either of you have, have seen any of this, but it, again, it, it gets into the personal lives of, of these types and what goes on behind the scenes and just how huckstery they truly are. Um, and again, I, I think that'll be kind of a fun place to close as we kind of start at screw tape Letters uh, and watch the perversion uh, of a uh, secular Christianity for, and again, I think at some the point t- at which you realize Kevin Copeland is Uncle Screwtape. Oh, whoa! There it is, uh, Kenneth. But yes, absolutely, and and Paul, and or not Paul. Uh, Did I not say Kenneth? Uh, I, I think you said, said Kevin. Kevin. Oh, I might have. I mean, who cares? Ah, I, I mean, who cares exactly? Pat, Kenneth, they're all bad. Uh, but yeah, I think it's it's an interesting spectrum, and we can kind of uh, compare and contrast all of these works uh, and, and examine just how modern society has interacted with this, you know, this 2,000-year-old belief structure, uh, for better and worse. Very good, very good. I'm interested in that class. Hey, Arthur. Hey. What's your class looking like, buddy? Uh, based solely on Annie McDowell's character uh, subplot of being a country and western <laughs> oh singer-slash-songwriter. Here we go, Arthur, back <laughs> at it with the yeah. height concept. Yes. Uh, mine is about country and western uh, as portrayed in cinema, uh, but I want to start with a David Allen Coe song, uh, You Never Even Called Me By My Name, uh, which starts as a very uh, serious country song before turning into a complete satire of the tropes of country music Love it. writing. Um, and so that that's where I would start. From there, I would go uh, back to... Early '80s, I think, uh, "Tender Mercies" with Robert Duvall um, as an alcoholic singer trying to make uh, amends in his life. Mm, a proto his... Crazy Heart, huh? Yeah, uh, very much so. Uh, it's where he won his first Oscar after being nominated three other times or four other times beforehand. Um, and so it's very much this uh, trying to establish a family unit with a uh, family that is not his original. He meets a widow and her, I believe, daughter. Uh, and he tries to uh, establish a, a cleaner lifestyle after uh, being something of a rock star type, you know. Um, but it's a, it's a really good uh, movie. Uh, I'd, I'd probably start there with that that portrayal. Uh, then I want to do George Strait's Pure Country. Oh my gosh! Um, uh, as uh, George Strait plays a, uh, a country music singer who's fed up with the pop style of of modern day country music, and he uh, goes on the lam and tries to reinvent himself. Uh, before coming back without all the smoke and mirrors. Uh, it's a really interesting experiment in trying to make George Strait a movie star. Um, and, and it's not unheard of with Johnny Cash, sure. Willie Nelson, He has uh, pretty Waylon good Jennings. screen charisma in that yeah. movie. He really does. Uh, uh, a lot of those country uh, outlaws of the 70s had made a transition onto the screen, and so it was you know a unique experience to try and do that with George Strait. I mean, Christopherson being kind oh, of yeah, the big most one. Definitely. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, the, the big one. I'll tell you, the delight in that film is John Doe from X as the drummer. <laughs> no kidding. <laughs> No kidding. Yeah, as as uh, George Strait's drummer. Huh, yeah, that's fun. 
Yeah, it's good but, times. Uh, Pure Country's a hoot uh, if you've never seen it. Uh, from there, I want to go with Oh Brother, Where Art Thou, which isn't Hell specifically yeah. about uh, country singers, but it is a subplot in the film. Yeah, it's about where, folk singing, yeah, which is kind of very bluegrass the roots and of country. Yep, yeah. Connected deeply to uh, the uh, genre, but also uh, talk about the amazing success of that film soundtrack as a bluegrass soundtrack. I mean, that was sure. a huge soundtrack when it came out. And Alison Krauss and the... Uh, the, I can't remember the, the band that she's with on that, but uh, the kind of can't revival either. of bluegrass that followed well, that. And the more bluegrass your country is, the less theft it is, which is fun. Yeah. Because uh, it's, you know, more rooted in uh, white people folk music and yeah. less theft from uh, rock and roll. Yeah. Uh, and after that, I will go with Crazy Heart. I think it pairs well with Tender Mercy, and I think it's just a, a really interesting turn of this kind of past-his-prime musician uh, trying to uh, stay up with the uh, up-and-coming Colin Farrell yeah. as his rival uh, countryman. Did you think about uh, Walk Hard at all? I, I did, but I didn't want to dive too far down that rabbit hole. Sure. Uh, but I will end it with The Star is Born. That makes uh, sense, The, the yeah. most recent version uh, with uh, Bradley Cooper, who's kind of a rock and roll kind of country. He feels very in that line with it's some kid modern... Rock. Yeah, well... <laughs> I think he's you know, probably Eric Church. Look, or... lots of people have debated uh, who he is, and I know he said it's kind of Eddie Vedder inspired. Uh, everybody has argued that there's no real analog in the real yeah. world uh, for for that character. I think the only one that even comes close, and this guy's much less of a celebrity than that character, and is way more a low key guy. That Sturgill Simpson is yeah. kind of doing a you know, especially with his most recent record, uh, is doing kind of a, a psychedelic rock and roll country fusion yeah. thing. Um, which would be one of my suggestions. Do you know about, I think I might have mentioned this on the show before, uh, the Netflix movie they did, there's like a visual album. I don't think so. It's called Sound and Fury. Uh, is his most recent record and is the name of the Netflix movie, and it's basically a, a heavy metal. It's just a feature-length uh, anime music video. Oh, cool. Yeah, it kicks ass. Uh, yeah. And it's probably like the weirdest, most out-there kind of conception of country music uh, as film, uh, both, again, because of its rock and roll influences, um, you know, it's psychedelia influences, and then again, basically, they wrote this record, and he was like, I'm going to go talk to all these uh, these Japanese weirdos and have them make a pervert cartoon for me, uh, and <laughs> it rules. But again, yeah, him and his band like anime, and he was like, this will be fun. Give like, us the title not? and the artist again. Sound and Fury, again, uh, is the both the album and the Netflix movie, and it's Sturgill Simpson is the artist. Well, there you go. I'm there for it. Uh, but yeah, that would be my, my class. I would just take a brief moment to kind of talk about... Uh, country music in in film and how it's been portrayed and kind of you know talking about crossover success whether yeah. it's country music singers or just how it's uh, ingrained into the culture I think that's a big part of a brother where art thou is how much bluegrass is ingrained in, in southern culture um, so weird but yeah how big of a hit that song was yeah that's wild album, I guess yeah, yeah. it was huge. Anyway, that, that's what I would do. Very good, very good. Thank you very much for that, Mister Arthur Gordon. So I think my class would be. Uh, a module in some either pop culture and theology class or just simply a uh, a film studies class as dealing with you know tropes or particular kinds of characters. Sure. But I'm, I'm just thinking about angels in movies. Gotcha. And uh, the angelic and its representation. Because Sounds like our classes could probably be modules in the same class. I think maybe. so, yeah. Like, they could definitely fit well together. And so, you know, what is it we do when we represent the angel and what choices do we make? And, of course, Michael's making some choices to uh, upset your expectations, right? To to and that, that I'm is, not that kind of angel. Right. That, I mean, that's exactly the point of what's going on there with it. With, again, our Van Halen cover, 
you know, um, new headcanon that we've invented for that. And then I was going to think about, uh, there's a 90s film, I've talked about it before, Christopher Walken, yep. The Prophecy. I thought about how often you may bring up this movie while I was watching, Michael. This, um, the, the Prophecy is so much fun. It does bring in the rule that, you know, angels always wear long coats. It's not invented here. We'll talk about the film in which it's invented here in a moment. <laughs> but, um, you know, you see it in City of Angels, which is not what we're going to be watching. But, uh, again, this idea, the, there are angels, and they don't like us, which I think is crazy. Yeah, that comes up a lot. I think that's, um, oh, God, what's the other? There's a, a bunch of that. Co- oh, uh, uh, Constantine, Constantine is yeah. the film I'm thinking of. But there's also a little bit of that in uh, Good Omens mm-hmm. uh, about kind of the complications between demons and angels and humans. and, and a how. huge part of Supernatural as well. That makes sense. Yeah. and sort Are of they s- mad at us because they, they, they don't have genitals? The, um, and some depictions. They well in in the in the prophecy depiction, um, they're hermaphroditic. They have all the genitals. Oh, that's interesting. They have extra genitals. Um, I, I'm kidding. I assume it's because they were first, and but we're more beloved. Um, uh, something like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're they're jealous of that. And uh, you know, Christopher Walken plays the angel Gabriel and a second fall of angels. And so uh, Viggo Mortensen uh, makes a turn in this as Lucifer. Ah, Lewis Cipher. Lewis Cipher. Um, and. Uh, he is terrifying. That makes sense. Young and Vigo is the young devil. Young Vigo as the devil, and old Vigo as the devil would be good too. Yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah. He's just a great devil, but um, I, I mean, he's a handsome devil. That's mm. why he's mm. so good at being the devil. So uh, thinking about again the sort of theological framework sure. uh, in which this is trying to construct a cosmology. And I think that's always fascinating and sort of interesting in the ways in which, you know, I mean, Michael is sort of agnostic. He doesn't know anything. You know, they're asking questions at a funeral. So what happens where they go? It's like, I don't, I don't know. It's not my department. And which is which is crazy and fun. Yeah. And uh, well, it's there's so much. Uh, I, I don't know how much more of this you're going to get into in your class. But what you're talking about is just kind of making me think of how much of Christian mythology is informed by what is technically pop culture going all the way back to the Renaissance, right? There isn't a lot of cosmology within the, you know, the actual religious framework. So it's just been grafted on by creative people, including Dante and all all sorts of others. Basically all kind of uh, sort of creative works using angels are some sort of Bible fan fiction. Yeah. I mean, it's really what it comes down to is because again, in in terms of the biblical narratives, there's not very much information. We know the names of a couple of them. We know that they have some sort of ranking system. We also know that sometimes they appear like something like humans and sometimes they appear like things with four different faces. Now is Nephilim being hybrids? Is that biblical or is that just pop culture? That's that's a thing. That's what I thought. There's a sort of angel demonic human hybrid things you know what they were it's but in they genesis were, right yeah that's in genesis and they were like hercules uh the descendants were like okay. sort of men of renown uh what that is uh the, tall grays is what they are i see uh the reptilians came yeah, yeah 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 infiltrating our dna lines correct um and that's how noah's ark was sort of this dna ship and no i'm tinfoil hat wearing conspiracy. this is fun yeah uh anyway so playing with that but speaking of nephilim i am thinking about um darren aronofsky's noah and oh yeah, we just got all that stuff, right? With, which is which is a really kind of bizarre representation, and uh, and just sort of again thinking about other ways in which that representation takes place. Uh, last film I probably use is Vim Bender's Wings of Desire, which is the inspiration in some senses for um, City of Angels, starring Nicolas Cage. But who's in that one? I know I've heard, I know uh, about this movie. The Star is a name that's going to get away from it. Peter Falk is in it. Okay, as a human, I an knew actor. there was somebody that I was like very aware of. It. Yeah, Peter Falk is the one. Columbo um, is the one that you will remember uh, from this this particular Vin Vendors film. But it's uh, this idea of uh, the wanting to help, but also not understanding, and the sort of dispassionate sort of viewing sure. that you experience. Is that there. where the trench coat covering wings yes. comes from? Gotcha. Yes. Um, and well, they don't actually have wings; they just wear long coats. Uh, <laughs> okay. So, in Michael, the trench coat sort of prov- provides an incognito effect, but in 
all, it seems like, if you're an angel, if you're a supernatural being, that's why you wear a long coat. Sure. Um, so unless you, you know, you're either a flasher, a serial killer, <laughs> or an angel. Um, so two out of three, not good. Uh, but otherwise, uh, yeah, uh, maybe okay, maybe not, because sometimes the angels like us and sometimes they do not. And just thinking about how this is a different kind of iconography and a different way to visualize, uh, maybe some comparison with the biblical narrative, maybe some looking at Gustav Doré and uh, some of his charcoal drawings uh, of Dante's Inferno and, uh, and Paradiso um, specifically, because there's more angels, obviously, in that one. But that would be uh, the shape of this module in some kind of, mm. you know, art and theology class of some sort. So there you go, dear listener. Those are our thoughts regarding uh, the syllabus. I think it's now time to get down to business. It's business. It's business time. I don't know what you're trying to say. You're trying to say and we're back. And the first order of business, I think, right now is structure. Okay, that makes sense. Let's stay informed for a little bit because I have some questions about production choices uh, for for y'all. But I think structure is a good place to start because I mean the thing that we keep saying is that we like this road movie, but we don't like this sort of romantic comedy, Sleepless in Chicago, that uh, uh, yeah. sort of finds its way to the end. So tell us what it is about this that doesn't work. And I'm I'm really looking at you pretty closely, <laughs> Arthur, because this is kind of your wheelhouse. Well, it's an interesting film because it starts very much as a situational comedy would. And sure. establishes not really the dynamics of a road movie until the second act, um, but that first act is very much you know them getting this uh, high concept kind of genre thing. Hey, there's an angel! Ha ha ha! Uh, is it real? Ha ha ha! And and that's what that movie starts with. Can I touch your wings? Yeah. yeah. Uh, hey, what kind of eggs do you want? Such a funny bit uh, that she always gives them scrambled no matter what, what they, they ask, ask for. for. Holy yeah. shit! Good good bit. I don't I don't understand it, but it's funny. Yeah, and, and there's really no. I mean, we kind of do have a slight meet cute when he first meets Andy McDowell, but not yeah. really in the... Tr- I mean, you could argue that it's there, but I don't think it really is that There's element. a little chemistry, but it's not Maybe, the same yeah. thing as a, as a structural and meet cute. Yeah. seeds are dropped when she kind of butts into their hotel room and he butts into her hotel room, and so those elements are a little there. And they brought this up, and I'm, I'll probably name check this Blank Check episode a couple of times because it was helpful in, in unpacking this film because it is such an oddity. Uh, but they they mentioned that in a you know from we all kind of agree that William Hurt and Andy McDowell ending up together makes zero sense. But I think the hookup makes a lot of sense, and they made that point Correct. on blank check. Like that scene is blocked really well. Yeah. It is a sexy scene. Yeah, it's a great chemistry there ex- on that stairwell. It's about the only scene where they do have chemistry. Yeah, I, I, I think agree. maybe in, even the night they spend in jail, they have a kind of have chemistry. They kind of lay the groundwork. Yeah, but it doesn't. You know that that scene at the hotel is so good. It's strange to me that it doesn't pay off. Really. Yeah, and, and I think it works within the context of the road movie. I mean, you've got these characters mm. who are together, um, and the Huey, I don't know the actor's name, Huey and Sparky, the dog, um, you know, have their own kind of arc, but the the road movie itself takes up the whole second act of the film, um, and it, it's really a deep exploration, I think, of each of these characters, each of their desires, each of their whims, and who they are at their heart, and that really kind of ties into what Michael's supposed mission seems to be uh, in, in the moment. Uh, before we get to that third act where it feels like we have this forced conflict of, oh, hey, I was really going to be the new dog trainer and we were going to take Sparky from you. and It's, it's so strange what we get part the of the plot that is. combustible relationship element that you see in a rom-com, and then we have to have the entirety of the uh, reconciliation that usually takes half of a rom-com to complete within a 20-minute period. Too many irons in the fire. Yeah, and, and it really feels like there there was a good percentage of the movie that was just this road movie that had maybe an end destination in Chicago, and we don't really know where that 
was supposed to go because Michael has this mission, but we really we can kind of infer maybe what that mission was was helping William Hurt not be a them dick. Up. Well, I, it, was, it was hooking them up as far yeah. as we can tell. Yeah, yeah. matchmaking. Yeah, making sure they end up together. And then there's like this kind of undercutting of uh, are they Andy McDowell? Is their character? kid going to cure cancer or something? <laughs> yeah, like what's what's the, the great what's destiny the of this? Yeah, it's, it's a mixed mythology because uh, Michael the Archangel kind of functions as Cupid, right? Yeah, yeah, for sure, absolutely. And then is like you know, Andy McDowell's kind of being set up as I, I don't want to be working for this tabloid. I've got bigger aspirations. You know, it's like William Hurt's like she, I'm a real journalist. Yeah. I don't want to work there either. Yeah, but and that's kind of never reconciled. I mean, she just kind of her whole character kind of gets dropped in the third act just so she can reconcile with William Hurt. Yeah, um, but you know, uh, she's supposed to go be country singer. Like, what's the thing here? And Michael asks for a price and apologies and mm-hmm. weird things that don't ever shake out. And it feels very disjointed in those breaks that it, it starts as one movie becomes something completely different that really works before having to be kind of roped back into a conventional narrative. Mm. And it's just that lack of cohesive, you know, direction or, uh, you know, not even tonality, because I think tonally it's completely in check through Very the film. Very consistent, yeah. But that kind of inconsistency in its narrative yeah, direction char- not and even, structure. Is it character motivations, or is it is it really just I think structurally? Michael, because I think Michael has, you know, we, we infer that, he, like I said, he has some sort of mission that he's on. Yeah. And they never really come back to it in that we are to just simply, I mean, we do have that closing scene of him and the old lady dancing through the streets of Chicago. Which seems to stops. confirm that was his mission. But that feels very forced and, and heavy-handed totally, in comparison to what he's been doing because he has revealed several times in the movie that he knows what each of these people are, what their hidden secrets are. Yeah. And, you know, Dustin pointed out that, you know, he has that thing at the funeral where he's like, not my department. But then he says that later when he heals the dog. Oh, I can't do that. And then he oh, does Oh, well, yeah. William, well, William Hurt says, don't give me the it's not my department yeah, crap. Like, he's like, yeah, I can do it, but it's going to, like, zap the rest of my yeah. juice. So it's a weird. I like the idea that angels can only do animal resurrections. <laughs> Humans too much. Yeah. That dog's I can do pushing dog. the envelope. I, I can do a dog, but it's going <laughs> to really take it out of me. Yeah. yeah. If, if it was, I'm going to start like molting. a dumber dog. If it was like a Rottweiler, yeah. it would have been easier. You know? Hey, you'd be nice to Rottweiler. <laughs> I, I think this movie is really focused and and interested in Michael and his dynamic and relationship with these people. Sure. Uh but it feels like that all gets undercut to serve this conventional rom-com narrative at the end of the day. Well, maybe that's a good time, a place to pivot to maybe the last time I'll, I'll reference the, the blank check coverage of this episode. But again, their, their series on Nora Ephron was, was really good. Um, but the, the point that they made that I was like, yes, 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 uh, yesing it the entire time I was listening was how everybody's miscast, which you've already touched on a little bit, Arthur. Uh, and again, I, I think the structural problems, you know, probably only exacerbate the, the casting issues, which, again, I think we can all agree. Now, Jack Nicholson, from what I could tell, is one of the original plans for Michael uh, for the casting there. Different movie. Really good movie. It would have worked, yeah. It would have worked. But I think John Travolta is really great here. I think he understands what he's supposed to be doing. But uh, Robert Pastolori, by the way, is the actor who plays gotcha. the sidekick. Uh, you would know him as uh, IMDb top four are uh, Striking Distance, Eraser, Dances with Wolves, and Beverly Hills Cop uh, 2. So, I, again, not uh, a like character actor. Like an kind of character actor. Sure. Yeah, but, uh, so he's fine. You know, again, I'm all over plot. Oh, hello. But I, I think really it is Andy McDowell and uh, William Hurt that drag everything down, right? Yeah. It's not that they're bad. 
you know they're they're okay they're fine they're 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 serviceable performances their the, their laugh lines are delivered well but they just don't click as romantic they you know they click as two people who have like enough chemistry to hook up but not yeah. to get together and I, I don't know either the script needs more from them in terms of how they feel spiritually because we get a little bit of it, right? We get a little bit of exploration of how they feel. We either need more in the script or we need more from the actors portraying these roles, just doing some kind of homework on their own and giving I mean, some life had, behind the lines. If you had, like, your rom-com power couple, you know, your Richard Gere, Julia Roberts. Yeah, yeah Tom Cruise, Meg Ryan. I think it almost does Tom. make sense that... Yeah. Tom Hanks. Tom Hanks. So I was like, I was like, no, you don't mean that. I kind of. <laughs> but what do you mean? My brain was like imagining it. Well, and I could not come through it. To reference, and you know, a, the classic cinematic couple, Tom Cruise and uh, Meg Ryan. Well, uh, to go forward a couple of decades, um, or a decade, well, like a couple of decades, um, we were talking about uh, sleeping with other people. Uh, with yeah. Jason Sudeikis and uh, Allison Brie off air. I, I think kind of a, a mismatched couple. You know, like, well, even uh, you know, to keep it um, contemporary with the time period. Like a, a Bill Murray and an McDowell, like right. I don't think it's wrong to have it be a uh, you know opposites tracked kind of mismatched couple thing. I think that's fine. I don't know that we need a huge power couple because that'll make it too obvious, right? Like mm-hmm. I, I think it works for it to be an unlikely romantic pairing. It just, I think William William Hurt's like a lot older than Andy McDowell, right? Am I wrong Seems on that, that way? Probably. I think he's got to be right. I'm assuming. Yeah. Anyway, just in terms of like how long career durations for both of them. Hollywood. I'm not going to look at well. Yeah, it is Hollywood. Uh, but again, it's, I don't know. They just, I don't buy it, even for a second. It, it doesn't work for me. And, and maybe it is that Hurt is the most miscast of the two of them. Um, because I think Arthur's right. I think Robert Downey Jr. would be great, especially like 1996 Robert Downey Jr. Are you kidding me? Right before he totally implodes for a little bit? Yeah. Perfect era for him. I don't know. Is there anybody else? That comes to mind. Uh, excuse me. For that William Hurt role? Yeah. Uh, for either of you. I mean, I think Tom Hanks would have been one. I, yeah, that's, I mean, Hanks. that's a very Tom God, Hanks role. Well, Especially in 96. Well, I think maybe it's just that much too late, right? That's like an 86 Tom Hanks. Back when they let, you know, they're kind of letting Tom. I mean, he's not that far removed from You've Got Mail, which is a very similar that's role. That's true. That's a very abrasive role for him. I, I guess, uh, you know, I think of kind of abrasive uh, Hanks more of Money Pit, uh, Turner and Hooch, The Burbs, you know, mid to late 80s Hanks. Uh, I think by the time, you know, this is post-Gump, and he's kind of become America's sweetheart and yeah. kind of shed his his crotchetiness, and he's yeah. only recently gotten to rediscover that. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I, I think Hanks is good. I, I, if, if only we had allowed him to kind of be crusty for that middle point of his career. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think that's a that's a good pick. What about you, Dustin? Anybody else comes to mind? I mean, off the top of my head, not not so much. I mean, yeah. Richard Gere. I mean, you know, Gere's good. I, I mean, like you. You know, there. with Hugh anybody. Grant. Hugh Grant. Oh my God, Hugh Grant. That's perfect. Yeah. Yes, somebody that's really obnoxious, but yeah. like also just hot as shit and like just super charming. Yeah, that's a good one. Um, just back to your earlier point, mm. it looks like there's an eight year age difference between the okay, two. Okay, so not that bad. Uh, Hurt would have been forty six, and I think McDowell was thirty eight. Which about eight years is like a perfect amount of age difference for an Especially unlikely at that couple. Point in in you know thirty eight and forty six yeah, is that's not gross. feasible. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No. Yeah. Okay. Never mind. It just maybe it's because William Hurt's been famous for so damn long that they he reads as older on screen. Um, but yeah, again, his his uh, his prickliness, like that's all good for the character. It's just. Again, as we mentioned, it's just too much from her. Too too much uh, frustrating, not enough, like, sweet. Uh, I just don't buy his, uh, his his turn to a sensitive guy. You need somebody that's got a little bit more. I gave what, Robert Downey Jr. one more time. Somebody that's got a little bit more, like, pain and soulfulness in their eyes, I think, for, the, yeah. for that performance. 
Do we have any other formal stuff we want to talk about before we start getting the themes? I don't think there's anything else structural I want to take care of, yeah. Okay, well, let's get right the hell into theology then, huh? Okay. Um, do you want to start with, uh, you know, Christian mythology, uh, as we you know, kind of both touched on, or do we want to talk about, like, love as a pan-religious and secular concept? I, I mean, I think that's almost the love being the pan-religious sexual concept. Uh, pan- oh, secular. sexual, yeah. Whoa, hey, maybe, whoa. Yeah, okay. Gosh, for the words. I mean, that's, go ahead. But uh, I, I think it's a more interesting thing, because I, I think this has almost nothing to do with Christian mythology. No, I mean, almost really. nothing at all. They, they, no. took a, they took a name from the book, Wings, you know, and now we're going to... Shield and spear. Probably the most famous angel. Right. And, and this sort of just stood it up, and uh, we're just going to do this sort of, you know, unlikely situation for You're, comedic well, purposes. Well, hold on. Dustin's lettered in this regard. Why don't you give us your, your hot take? Gabriel or Michael? Who's the uh, the most well-known? Who's the coolest? Oh, uh, that's a good question. I mean, in terms of... Uh, the, representation depiction michael is the warrior you know he's yeah. the one to fight satan and all that good stuff and gabriel is a messenger gotcha. uh, but they're both archangels so they're of the same rank um you know i mean it's kind of a apollo hermes dynamic yeah something like that yeah and uh but yeah uh now what about the metatron where does he come in or is that just from dogma that's from dogma okay well he's a character in supernatural tight he's there god's a, scribe of course there is a raphael and a raphael. uriel raphael yeah uh that are also uh, described in, I think, some of the uh, apocryphal writings, if memory serves. Okay. Or not apocrypha, but the, yeah, the apocrypha. So, but yeah. Uh, That's the extended canon for all of our, uh, our non Christian. Yeah, listeners. yeah. The, the, well, the extended, uh, well, the non Protestant. Well, yeah, I guess the expanded universe. Yeah. E- e- ejected canon. It is the uh, deleted scenes from the DVD extras. Um, so, anyway, uh, there you go. Yeah, I don't know. But yeah, so theologically, I don't, this movie doesn't really have a theology. It's not, it's not yeah. interested in that. Other than, I think, the redemptive power of love sure. in this particular sense in the american secular sense romantic love that uh what you need if yeah, you no, have no pro- agape it's got to be yeah uh, eros if your life is broken and you're a mess what you need is some good loving mm. and uh because i went to the doctor and he told me what i need you know i mean that's it's, it's boring it is boring it's and boring and an inaccurate depiction of human need exactly and so i mean i don't know what more i want to say about that other than you know again the the thing that's going to fix annie mcdowell the thing is going to fix william hurt the thing is you know going to fix anybody is that they find you know romance in well I, I guess the only the other thing to be found is kind of a, an intersection of both form and theme, right? It's like when, uh, maybe to, to dip back into Preacher for a second, um, that's a story where God exists that manages to find a way to keep the stakes there because they're acting against God in that story. In most other stories where like God or uh, emissary of God appears, it is to, and again, this goes all the way back to you know the earliest dramas, the Greeks, uh, God shows up to like make everything hunky dory and it fucking erases all the stakes because the when you have confirmation, ghost machine, yeah, exactly. When you have confirmation that God is on the side of the protagonists, well, everything's fine and everything will work out. Right, takes out all your dramatic irony. Yeah, you know, which I mean, which goes back to sort of you know, uh, this is some something theological sort of conceptions of God as meticulous, exhaustive control of all events and as they take place. Yeah, and uh, rather uh, rather than a God who allows events to unfold as we would see fit. Right, with kind a, of more let, randomness. Let's say a uh, with the latter being more of a Doctor Manhattan God. Uh, well, I guess that's more of a determinist. Thing. Yeah, Doctor so Manhattan's maybe, pretty determinist. Maybe the former then is kind of the Doctor Manhattan type. Mm-hmm. What would the latter be? Uh, I mean, I don't know if there would be a sort of way to think about pop it pop culturally speaking. Pop culturally speaking, because we're talking about a relational sort of involved God who's sure. making decisions and 
finding out what happens next. <sighs> yeah, I'm trying. I'm kind of think. I'm trying to think if there's any depictions of the divine. Probably not depicted as like the uh, the Abrahamic God, but I, I'm surely there's some depictions of a deity that kind of fit in line with that conception. Yeah, I have to think divine. on it some, dear listener. If you have any thoughts, um, by all means, send them in. I'd be yeah. curious. I'm having fun with this this aspect. Do we have any other theology stuff? Because I, I was kind of thinking about that a lot with this, even though it's pretty thin in mm-hmm. that regard. It. it I couldn't help but think about it uh, with, uh, again, especially with, I don't know, the, the way in which Michael is portrayed as subverting people's expectations. Uh, and again, the way in which um, I, I think when uh, spirituality is, is practiced well, it, it does subvert people's expectations, right? When when we remember uh, that uh, Jesus of Nazareth's best friends were, you know, tax collectors and sex workers and, uh, you know, working class types, um, and we, we keep those things in mind. It does subvert what have become kind of our common popular conceptions uh, of the divine. I, yeah, I totally agree with that. That that your boxes tend to be inaccurate, and they tend to be you know frustrated by you know actual experience. Yeah, and uh, walking into that, I think I, the, the movie is doing that kind of work, and I think that's quite useful. Um, the other thing that I thought was important that we might want to think about uh-huh. is a uh, weird, quaint country America. Yeah, real. <sighs> Ooh, I don't want to dunk on Nora Ephron too hard because I like her a lot and uh, I don't speak ill of the dead generally. But yeah, it, it is a, a real, for lack of a, or I will not even say lack, want of a better way to put it, a real coastal elite conception of what yeah. uh, middle of the country type folk are like. Uh, and and again, you know, she's a, a New Yorker writing about Chicago, which, yeah, there's a lot of overlap there, but Chicago is Midwest as hell mm-hmm. at the end of the day. Yeah, and again, Iowa setting it there is you know a heavily like idealized Midwestern location. And a lot of these roadside taverns that they're winding in very boots. World's boogie. largest belly of yarn. Yeah. and again, that stuff's fine. Like I, I like the high ad- capital of the world. Yeah, and it makes sense that uh, you know Michael, as this kind of hedonistic character, would want to go experience all these weird novelty places. But you're right that like it, it is a conception. It's it kind of ties back into uh, our, my unfolding the '90s as the '50s theory, mm-hmm. or at least the, the cinema of the '90s as reflective of the cinema of the '50s uh, in America. Anyway, it, it is that ah, the middle of the country where real America happens. Right? It is kind of uh, the real uh, the cultural reflection of the Newt Gingrich bullshit that was going on around the same time. Well, and I think it reflects a good thing and a bad thing. The bad thing first, which is yeah. the Titanic phenomenon, right? Which is like bourgeoisie uh, vampirism. That sure. I am, you know, without meaning and I'm devoid of life. And so what I need to do is find, you know, some good old down to earth, salt of the earth kind of people with some dirt under their fingernails. Yeah. And then I will suck the life from them. And then I will go back to my urban cosmopolitan enclave. Having learned something. You know, having bettered myself. And I think that's troubling and, and obviously very, very problematic. And that's what's wrong with Rose in Titanic. Yes, I said it. But it does make sense in this this context, especially because it is kind of examining the uh, these working class people being more outright like, yeah, okay, dude's an angel. Makes sense. Whatever. No questioning of it whatsoever. Right. right? This idea that uh, uh, rule types or um, I, I guess uh, in the American conception, the Midwestern types are uh, much more uh, spiritually inclined Right than the than the cosmopolitan folk. Well, and that's why the movie begins with the idea of this being a tabloid rag, right? Yeah, that that they're sort of finding Bat Boy and you know those kinds of werewolf people and you know all that kind of stuff when somebody's got born with some sort of birth deformity mm-hmm. or they're trying to you know find real pictures of Santa Claus or a real angel or whatever. But throughout, there is this other side of this particular coin that I think is interesting. Yeah, is that there is a lot 
to be interested in. There's mm-hmm. a lot that's happening that is strange and weird and outside of the sort of you know, uh, gatekeepers of what's culturally important, and that you might have a really good time if you pulled off the interstate and went to the pie capital of the world and uh, tried the boysenberry. You might have a really good time if you said, you know what, I've never seen the world's largest ball of twine. And that there, that what it does also, I think, and I think this is sort of valuable, is that sometimes urban modern living mm-hmm. is a thing that is, by its very nature, kind of life-sucking. Sure, you okay. Know? And that there are, there's a real value to finding your roadside attractions and whatnot. And I'm thinking about Neil Gaiman's American Gods, uh, where um, oh yeah, really fits in with the conversation we've been having. Yeah, yeah. Sure. The, that that the roadside attraction itself are the American high places, and that you know who goes to the high places? Kooks and crazies and weirdos and people who don't have any you know more time. And people always... who uh, kind of intrinsically appreciate how thin reality is. Yeah, but that's the other side of it. Is that if you go into the boondocks and go into these sort of different kinds of spaces, your mind is opened up to other possibilities. And you're yeah. absolutely right. That is kind of the more positive. You can easily key in on kind of the negative, uh, looking down your nose at some of these people. And again, I don't think Efron does that. I think there is. Mm-hmm. Uh, an empathy and an appreciation. Um, again, it, it is kind of othered, but only insofar as that I think she knows she doesn't really understand these people. Um, but but definitely, I, I totally, I, I love that conception, too, of the idea that the kooks and weirdos might actually have a, a more concrete idea of what's really going on. Yeah, and, and, and I think that's something sort of valuable, and that totally. Michael's like, okay, this these are the places I want to make sure we hit, you know, so I want to yeah. find, you know, the world's largest block of cheese or whatever, you know, I forget all the details of the specific mm-hmm. spots he hits up, but balls of twine and pie capitals of the world. And, you know, and again, they... they See the tallest building, you yeah. know, which which does work in a sort of culminational kind of way that you know this is high civilization. So, well, and it's it is when he reaches high civilization that he is officially out of juice and has yeah. to exit, right? Right, and so I don't know, um, but I, I do find that kind of you know weird. There again, the sort of condescending, quaint, but mm-hmm. also this idea that it, the 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 film does go ahead and invest those areas with a certain kind of intrigue and power if you would slow down to pay attention that you might actually have a really important yeah. road trip personal set of discovery if you pulled off the interstate and drove down route 66 for instance i i find that road trips are uh, the best way to unpack some things especially if you're locked in a car with your family for a while you really get through some shit yeah uh, unpack my pistols and what well yeah i was gonna say the the uh, the release valve finally has to uh, go if, yes. if you've got some uh, conflicts that have gone unresolved uh, a road trip will, will out definitely bring them to the fore yes well do we have anything else that feels like a, an analysis i think we're doing well let's no. go ahead and render a verdict then what do we say shelf or trash for michael what do you say arthur man um i think just like last week i think i've got to just very softly put this in the trash okay you know i, I think it's fun uh but i don't think it's it's you know necessary viewing it's not efron's best work uh it's a fun travolta turn though and so uh, i i think uh if nothing else it's it's definitely worth watching but it's it's slightly going in the trash Fair enough, fair enough. What do you say, Dalton? I'm going to go uh, agree with Arthur and yet disagree with Arthur. I'm going to say you go ahead and shelf it because it is weird as hell. Uh, and uh, if the print on HBO Max is any indication, uh, this film might be lost to history in a few decades. Because uh, if Warner Brothers, who you know put this movie out, doesn't have access to a good print, shit, nobody does. 
so I say put it on your shelf because it's super weird, and I literally can't think of a single movie like it. Uh, and if you've listened to this show a lot, you know that that is a, a pretty good way to get on my list. You know, Splice last week trashed that, as Arthur said. We all kind of lightly put it aside because there's lots of things like Splice. I can't think of, again, there's lots of road movies. There's lots of 90s road movies, too. But tell me one other one where there's a bad boy angel in your road movie. I Again, City of Angels, Arthur uh, and Dustin have both mentioned in this episode, which is a totally different thing, but... You know, very 90s uh, film. Uh, I remember the trailers quite vividly. Uh, look, you got a Goo Goo Dolls song in your movie. You're a 90s movie, that's for sure. Uh, but again, there's there's nothing like Michael. It's weird. It's a it's a Nora Ephron fluke. Uh, and again, in terms of her, the arc of her career, just so interesting. Huge numbers, poorly received critically, big box office numbers, and then just like gone. Nobody remembers it. No cultural cachet whatsoever. It's just an oddity. Uh, and again, uh, looking at Travolta, too, in the arc of his career, I think th- it makes it that much more interesting, just again, for both him and Efron, like where this sits for them. It's weird, and I like that about it. Fair enough, fair enough. I'm going to say trash, because, I mean, I haven't seen this movie in you know over 20 years, and I won't see it again for another 20 years, probably. Oh, God. So. I'm so old. And uh, so, yeah, I mean, yeah, it was fine. And when you start throwing out the word 20 and the word years when talking about a film that was you know made after I was born, I just start feeling disastrously elderly. Uh, well, sorry, buddy. Yeah, uh, I know. This is how you've been feeling th- for <laughs> the last eight years of making this show, I imagine. For 80 years of my life. Um, but yes, indeed, uh, which is what the last eight years have felt like, the last 80 years of my you life. Yet another hint that Dustin's a vampire listener, if you're keeping score. Uh, anyway, uh, good times uh, with the movie. I like watching it. Um, when it would come on, I would, I would see it, I guess, if it came on again. But that being said, I don't see any reason to seek it out. I don't see any reason to own it. So I am saying trash uh, much more solidly than maybe I did last week. So... Well, there you go. That's uh, that's a movie in the can. We've talked about it. It's done. And we already did the social media, so we're basically done. Arthur, why don't you uh, tell Dustin and I, because we have no clue, and also the listener, what the homework is. Yeah. Uh, so next week, uh, we are going to uh, watch a little uh, fantasy mystery uh, when we take a look at Catherine Hardwick's Red Riding Hood. Oh, nice. Dude, Fun. I forgot about that movie. All yeah, right. this is what she did right after Twilight, right? Yes. Yeah, with uh, Amanda Seyfried. Yep, and Gary Oldman. I can I tell you the only time I've seen any portion of this movie. I, I used to work out at a Gold's Gym many many years ago, and they had this thing where they'd run movies mm. uh, in front of all the yeah. cardio machines. And I watched part of like maybe the mid like the end of the second act started the or into the first act started the second act of this movie uh, on an elliptical machine one time. Nice. Uh, <laughs> I've totally forgotten this existed. I have seen no part of it whatsoever. Did you know it existed? I did you... know it existed. Okay. Yeah. I'm excited. This will be fun. Yeah. yeah. Uh, a fairy tale subversion with a werewolf. Hell yeah. I'm there. I'm there for it. So there you go, dear listener. You keep watching. We'll keep talking and we'll see you all next time.